Welcome to the Ancient Christian Writers series, led by Father David Abernethy of the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The following recording is a reading and discussion of The Spiritual Life by St. Theophane the Recluse. Our ability to provide podcasts free of charge is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. If you would like to make a contribution in support of our ministries, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org. Your interest and prayerful support are appreciated. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our final group of St. Theophan's correspondence with Anastasia. And we're picking up this evening with the new letter, 79, and hopefully we'll get through letter 80 as well, which is rather short. And um, he's been dealing over these past weeks with uh, temptations that Anastasia has been experiencing as she approaches the time of entering a religious community. And he's taken her through a whole host of them. Uh, he's even struggling with her own parents, uh, you know, wanting to sort of push the time up uh, when she would be able to join. And tonight he'll, he's dealing with just general anxieties that she's been facing in the spiritual life that are attempting her to step away from prayer or uh, to doubt herself in some way or to doubt God. And so he offers her uh, counsel through this and uh, helping her to see how the enemy works to undermine her confidence in God. So in large part is trying to encourage her to trust in the providence of God and to face these things with, with a kind of courage in the spiritual life, not to give over to the spirit of anxiety that often can sort of take hold of our lives. And so again, we're on page 301 with letter 79. May the grace of God be with you. You still have anxieties. Tell me, where could they have come from? Everything external is in order for you. You have re-examined and adjusted everything internally and have confirmed your decision. Where could these anxieties come from then? Everything is from the enemy. Everything from nowhere else. I, I love Theophan's clarity about this uh, because we often have this tendency, I think, to overanalyze uh, the things that are going on in our life as to why certain things are happening. And, uh, and especially with something like anxiety uh, that can surround aspects of the spiritual life, that we can get caught up in our ruminating about it and uh, trying to figure out its origin. And so he's very clear with her. There's one source of sort of this uh, uh, force that sort of pulls us apart interiorly, that we experience a kind of internal disintegration because of this anxiety. And he's very clear that, you know, the peace, the spirit of peace is of Christ. And this lack of peace that she's experiencing anxiety has one source. And in this, he gives her a kind of strength uh, to treat it like a temptation uh, rather than trying to constantly analyze it so as to try to control it. And even if we don't analyze it, I think that's often our tendency in life. Uh, and certainly, you know, I'm not talking here about clinical anxiety or those who might be struggling with it, but uh, 
the anxiety that is sort of ubiquitous for us as human beings that is rooted in our sin and our separation from God. And uh, this, you know, we can get caught up in trying to control it, to manage it. And we will go to great lengths uh, to do that. And uh, whereas what he counsels her to do here is rather face it with courage and to treat it as a temptation and to immerse herself in her prayer, cling to her prayer, because it's even having the effect of undermining which she had so deeply, uh, had become so deeply rooted in. What else could it be? Are you not thinking of arranging your life on your own, through your own efforts and abilities, as if it was what you were told? Take a look, and if this is indeed the case, rush to correct it. With this attitude, you will not get rid of your confusion. So there you are re-examine yourself if you please or mentally repeat everything you were told to do and what has occurred in you and how you at last resolved the matter of your own life and direct this re-examination in such a way that the end results in a firm decision to place your fate irrevocably in the hands of God. Then begin praying and after praying fervently speak before the Lord from your heart. I place my fate in thy hands, Lord. In the way of thou knowest, arrange my life with all its contingencies and happenstances. For now on, I cut off every care about myself, having but one care, to always do what is pleasing before thee. Speak in this way, and by the very action, you will have already placed yourself completely in God's hands not concerned about anything, but calmly accepting every sort of situation is being arranged for you on purpose by God, whether it is pleasant or unpleasant. Your sole concern should be to act according to God's commandment in every instance. This is all that is required for you. I'm sure she scoffed at the last sentence, this is all that is required of you because it's easier said than done. Uh, many times uh, to be able to set aside one's anxiety. But the counsel that he gives her here and the little prayer that he encourages us to say is, is beautiful. And I think right, right on the mark that it, it pulls her away from the anxiety completely, that this is what you do. You place yourself in the hands of God irrevocably and whatever might come upon you, that you embrace it with a kind of freedom, acknowledging that all things are in the hands of God. And so what is there to fear? And even if the things are difficult or hardships or uh, if we're facing failure of some sort, that all these things should not be, have as much weight for us as pleasing God and fulfilling his commandments. And so long as we're being faithful to him, then we should be free, free from the things that might cause us anxiety within this world. And indeed, it is difficult. You know, I think, as I, I mentioned, you know, anxiety is ubiquitous. It's experienced by just about, not just about everyone, everyone. And it seems to be something that we can't uh, understand or grasp fully. Uh, I remember studying Freud, he said, you know, this anxiety is the enigma. You know, it's one of the things that he could never put his finger on uh, as to the source of it, because it was ubiquitous. Everybody was everybody struggles with it. So what, what would be the origin of it for us as human beings? 
And it's really only men and women of faith, of deep faith, who give us the solid counsel in that regard, that it is part of the fall. I think when we experience ourselves as displaced from that relationship with God in any measure, that immediately we begin to experience anxiety. You know, our life becomes uncertain. We experience a kind of internal insecurity. Our deepest peace rests with God. And this isn't to lay blame upon anyone. I think it's part of our fallen condition. I think we can add to it at times, uh, either by the weakening of our faith or through negligence in the spiritual life, not turning to God. But nonetheless, I think it's part of the human condition. And so try as we may, you know, uh, we might gain some control over it, but often that control can be an illusion, that there's something always that will come up that can undermine it. And, you know, my biggest fear is public speaking, and I did everything under the sun, first to avoid it, and then, <laughs> and then everything I could to do to try to control it. And... Uh, most of that was just doing violence to myself by thrusting myself into circumstances where I had to do it. And you figure out, you know, you can only throw up so many times before you sort of figure out, okay, I'm not going to die from this. And, uh, but nonetheless, you know, it's not ultimately what, that give, what gives one peace. We might control the anxiety on the surface, but I think deep within us, no matter how much control we have, we can still experience a kind of radical insecurity about ourselves in life until we're able to make this prayer that he gives to Anastasia and really make it from the depths of the heart in the way that he's counseling her. You know, it's one thing to say the words, it's another thing to really believe them and to truly offer oneself to God in an irrevocable fashion. That's what gives the, the, the freedom. I give myself to you completely. I withhold nothing from you. And the moment that we, we do that is when anxiety begins to dissipate. As soon as you have arranged things in this way, there will be an end to all your worries. You are concerned about yourself at present and want to arrange and turn all happenstances toward your own end. Since it is not all working out, you're troubled that this is not, uh, that this is not like this, and that is not like that. When, however, you commit everything to the Lord and accept it as coming from him and is needed by you for your good, then you will have no troubles, but will only have to look around you to see what the Lord sends, so you may act in accordance with what is sent. Any situation may come under the commandment. Place it under and act according to the commandment, trying to please God instead of exerting yourself to satisfy your own desire. Try to understand well what I'm saying and resolve to achieve this state of mind. It is necessary to learn it. it cannot be done suddenly. Pray about this. So very good ending to that paragraph. You know, it's not something that comes about immediately. And you have to strive for it. And most of all, you have to pray for it. And, you know, it's the kind of a curious thing. The more that we try to control the circumstances in our life, the more our anxiety holds us in its grip. That we often make a mess of things by our attempt to control circumstances and control other people 
And when we find out as he's telling her that this doesn't work or that doesn't work, we become frustrated and then we find try to tighten our grip in one way or another. I remember when I was going through analysis, uh, whenever things were really difficult, uh, I had been elected provost of the community. I was studying full time. I was director of campus ministry. I think the community was trying to kill me at that point. I don't know what was going on, but I had all these things going on at the same time. And uh, in analysis, your defenses begin to drop. You're on the couch four or five days a week. And so just at the moment when I felt that I needed my defenses up to protect myself, because now I was provost. And when you become superior, you become the focus of everybody's complaint and anger and everything else. And, uh, and so I remember being on the couch and every once in a while, I'd have this incredible impulse to buy a new calendar so that I could you know, especially like a month at a glance so that I could see everything that was coming and make sure that I had all my ducks in a row and be prepared for what was coming. And so that I wouldn't be taken off guard or that I wouldn't let anything fall through the cracks. And it's funny when you become attentive to those kind of things, you know, when it comes up just as a part of the stream of consciousness uh, that uh, you begin to see how prevalent that is, and not just in getting calendars, but that desire to sort of control the circumstances around us, because we can begin to anticipate what people might do or might say to us. And so we try to uh, prepare ourselves internally for it. And we begin to uh, sort of think about various scenarios. I don't know if you've done this before, maybe it's just me, but you think of certain scenarios and what you might say in response to the person if they do this or say this to you. And so you can spend your whole time and an enormous amount of energy on these virtual situations that you're preparing yourself in order for in order to alleviate your, your anxiety. But in the, the, whole, the whole time, you're only ramping up your anxiety, oftentimes to in incredible levels. And think about our world. I mean, we, we are just confronted with so many things that create anxiety. You know, looking at what's going on in the world, think about COVID, the unknown about that. And, you know, I remember when it first started, you know, people, you know, not only were we washing our hands a thousand times a day, but, you know, people, if they were outside, they would come in and they would immediately take all their clothes off and throw it in a hamper and you know go put on fresh clothes or with groceries you remember that how people at first were washing down all their groceries when they bought them home or they would leave them outside for a couple of hours and so think about the level of anxiety that people probably had over these past two years to, to cope with especially those living in isolation you know it would be very difficult andrea and anthony Hi, Father. Yeah, I have a I had a question regarding this. What you're what you are saying, you know, it seems to me that there has to be some balance. I mean, there are some things that we uh, have to try to do to influence the environment around us, uh, and at the same time accept the things that we cannot influence. But you know, there is some level where us taking actions to protect ourselves or to uh, you know influence the situation to um, uh, making more favorable is healthy and good. So I'm wondering what the balance do you that you see is there. 
Yeah, you know, I've often thought about that too. And I've, I, I think I've sort of articulated things in the same way as well. Uh, but I, I think sometimes that still comes from a place of anxiety within us. I think what he wants to do is to free her not from a sense of responsibility or of having to deal with the realities of life, but free her from the sense of desiring to control the circumstances around her. That the more pure one's heart is, and the more obedient one is to God, the deeper one's faith is in God and his providence and care for us, the, the greater clarity that one begins to develop about the realities around them, and even how to enter in, into them. That God will clearly call us to engage others in our life and in our relationships that we have, the circumstances at work or in, in the home. But when there is this kind of irrevocable abandonment to God, it doesn't lead to a quietism, but rather it leads to a kind of clarity of vision, peacefulness of heart that allows us to act sometimes with a greater, uh, greater speed or swiftness because we, are, we aren't blinded by that anxiety or fear that the more we are immersed in that relationship with God, sometimes things present themselves to us more quickly. And I think you could ask any student that, you know, often they're driven by fear and driven by anxiety. And maybe we'll work all night long, all night long and stay up all night long studying. And part of the reason for that is that they're being driven more by fear and it's taking them longer to study. And they're probably procrastinating more because procrastination is rooted in fear and anxiety. People put things off in terms of dealing with them so they don't have to think about it in the moment until they're pressed to deal with it. And then it floods them with anxiety because all of a sudden they're running out of time. And so they end up staying doing all-nighters uh, in order to complete the task. And so, you know, I think this is part of the issue here is what he, what he wants her to free her from is that which controls us rather than the grace that guides us in our day-to-day -day action. And so you're right, you know, there are certain things that we have to deal with and there are weighty matters that we will experience uh, in all their fullness, you know, in terms of the, the significance of them or hardship of them. But there's a difference between that and the kind of anxiety that arises out of our disconnect from God. Like we might experience the trial of an illness, for example, you know, the physical pain of it and uh, and even kind of the fear that it can give rise to, and still, you know, as a person of faith, embrace it and make our way through it, uh, you know, being able to entrust ourselves to the hands of God, so that we aren't reacting to every situation around us through the lens of that fear and anxiety. So it's not as though those reality, we, be, we become stoics. Uh, but it's those realities, the emotions that don't control us. It's not that we don't have them, but they don't become the guiding factor in our life. And he actually talks about that a little further on in the letter. So just wait a little bit longer, and I think he'll try to spell a little bit of that out for her, maybe clarify it for us. Vicki. What do you do about um, when it gets to be crippling anxiety? Mm -hmm. 
like actually that's something I'm dealing with. I actually a couple of weeks ago just had a breakdown mm-hmm. and I had to quit my job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been trying to figure out um, when do you spiritualize it? And when is it like a actual problem? Like I'm just, I, I don't know how to wrap my head around it because it's something I've always dealt with and now it's become a problem. Right. No, good question. And you know, uh, emotions, it's not that emotions don't speak the truth to us. They often do. Uh, say, for example, in the face of injustice, often we will experience great anger at that. And so our anger tells us something is not right here. And so sometimes even that experience of anxiety can do the same thing too. Or, you know, that there's something out of balance in our life or a set of circumstances, say, with work that is out of balance or toxic. And uh, that that emotion sort of points us to. And I think this draws us back to some of the counsel that we've been looking at in the Evergatinos in the sense of not walking that path alone because it can become very confusing, you know, especially when the uh, emotions become very intense or the circumstances surrounding them becomes very intense as well. It becomes difficult for us to unpack them. And so I think to be able to, to see the, the reality of the emotion, to look at what it's rooted in, you know, to try to slow things down f- for ourselves uh, in terms of the pressure that often then we, we feel to make a decision or to act quickly. Uh, and so when it's possible to slow things down, to be able to talk to those who are trusted confidants in our lives, to sort of be able to look at circumstances to see if there is something giving rise and elevating that anxiety, or if it's coming from someplace else, you know, whether it's spiritual or there can even be uh, biological, you know, physical things that give rise to it as well in our life that we need to be, uh, be able to address with a physician or emotionally, you know, sometimes we can go through periods in our, in our life where we've had prolonged stress and it can then suddenly hit us like a brick and it becomes very difficult life begins to fall apart or uh chronic pain you know often that that arises out of prolonged periods of stress you know our body begins and our minds begin to process things in a different way and so i think when we're going through a situation like you described where it becomes very difficult I think we, we, first of all, we don't want to take it alone because I think you're right. We could spiritualize, it, you know, in the sense of saying, I just, I have to white knuckle it here. I abandon all to God, all God and I have to sort of press my way through it. And I don't think that's what Theophan would want her to do, which would be to ignore the realities of the circumstances. And I don't think that's what he sees what's going on with her. I think he sees sort of the the devil playing around with her in the sense of making her question various aspects of her her decision or the circumstances around her. Uh, I think in talking with people I have over the course of the years, uh, I think always it is being able to, to seek the counsel of a trusted spiritual director who has, is also psychologically insightful or to see someone who's trained 
in that regard that allows us to unpack things, you know, sort of from the outside in to see what the source of, of that anxiety might be. And, you know, to be gentle with oneself too. You know, I think anxiety has a, a way of really taking hold of us and getting us in its grip, especially when it intensifies, you know, where it becomes so heavy that it, we, we can no longer carry it. And then we, we do need to, to stop, I think, is the most healthy thing. You know, I think in, in our day and age, we are used to driving ourselves to the point of breakdown. And we're almost told and convinced that that's a virtue. You know, life sets us on this path, we get sucked along it, and we're told that, you know, if you're strong, you know, you'll be able to make your way through this. And that can be as much a, a temptation of the evil one as well, that our life would be directed and ordered by what is toxic or what, it, what has become unbalanced. You know, when people are working like 16 hours a day or, or longer, you know, there's something that has become severely unbalanced about their life. And yet they, they can think in their heart of hearts that this is what they must do or need to do. Did you have a, did you want to follow up with that? I mean, did you have some? No, um, what you said was very helpful. Okay. It is hard. And so, you know, in taking what Theophan is talking about here, I don't want to be flippant about it. Uh, you know, in saying that, you know, anxiety is so pervasive and even tying that to the spiritual realities, I, I don't want to be dismissive of the, you know, the worldly realities that often magnify it for us. And, you know, we, we, again, we live in a fallen world. And so there are often a lot of things that really, you know, lay an anxiety upon us that feels uncontrollable and unmanageable. But I think he's talking to her specifically here about sort of the day-to-day -day spiritual life where we can be derailed. Okay. But I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because I, I think over the course of the, one of the years, one of the reasons I went back to study what I did is that I felt that even as a priest, I was sort of walking in the dark with people. And I didn't feel quite right saying, you know, I can't deal, I can't deal with what you're going through. I'll, I'll refer you to someone. And, you know, I'm more than comfortable in referring people to see a psychologist or psychiatrist when I, I feel that there's a need for it. But I don't think the church can sort of hand people off to therapists, that we have to be with people in whatever their, their struggle in life might be, because our faith life touches everything about who we are as human beings. And so always the greatest resource for a person whether it's physical illness or day-to-day -day trials and tribulations or experiences like anxiety and depression, the greatest resource is always going to be their faith, the most powerful resource. And, uh, and so, you know, there was this unfortunate breach between psychology and, and spirituality that took place precisely as psychology began to develop as a science. And in particular with Freud, you know, his atheism made him very suspect 
in the eyes of the church. In fact, there was a period of time that there were certain works that priests weren't allowed to do. And one of them was psychoanalysis, that you weren't allowed to be a psychoanalyst if you were a priest, that it was somehow, it was seen as contrary to the spiritual life and spiritual pursuits. And so there was this kind of division that existed and uh, came into play over the 20th century in particular. And it's a strange thing I always found looking back at the fathers because they were so psychologically astute. They knew what was going on in the mind and the heart so well, but because of this kind of movement towards atheism in secular psychology, there was a, a wholesale rejection of it as well as, as there was a sort of rejection of a religion by so many within, within the field. And it's only in more recent times that this has begun to break down. It's funny, there's a funny little fact about Freud that uh, he lost just about every friend in his life uh, at some point or another, even long-term friends. You know, he was sort of like this father figure among them all within the field of psychology. And there was sort of this competitive element that began to develop. And some of them would break off and start their own sort of school of thought and way of approaching things. Uh, but there was one trained analyst who was uh, a Christian uh, pastor, Oscar Pfister. And he's the only one that remained friends with Freud throughout the, his, the whole of their life. And they'd go back and forth and have these battles. Freud uh wrote, wrote this book uh, uh the uh the future of an illusion which it was his writing about religion as being sort of the psychological construct and oscar fister wrote back a response to it a book called the illusion of a future <laughs> which i thought was rather cle clever on his part you know that he wasn't afraid to engage freud but he was also deep, so deeply rooted in his faith that he was able to maintain this dialogue, that he wasn't threatened by Freud's scrutinizing of those things, that he was so rooted in the truth of, of the faith that he could, he could accept the things that Freud did see, the clarity that Freud did see about many different things, even about religion, but could engage him directly where he felt that Freud was completely off the mark, where there were, were blind spots for him where he could not see the truth, the full truth about the human experience because he had stepped away from faith altogether. So, and I was yammering on there, but uh, you know, so there are times, you know, always, I think when we need to seek out spiritual counsel and sometimes even the a confidant, closest friend, you know, so that we don't deal with that in isolation. I think that's what, often makes it harder that we feel so isolated by the anxiety because it, it pulls us in upon ourselves. We feel overwhelmed and we're naturally going to move to the defensive posture. And having someone who knows us well enough who can enter into that with us can really help to alleviate it and also help us gain some clarity. You know, another voice who's present there with us can often be enough to give us the light that's needed to make our way forward. Good question, though. Okay, we're moving on. You guys aren't going, you guys aren't gonna, you're not gonna trip me up. <laughs> Slow me down. 
Okay, uh, I pray the, to the Lord that he will deliver you. Uh, am I in the right paragraph? Is that right? Okay. I pray to the Lord that he will deliver you from that situation, which you consider unpleasant for yourself. Adding, however, if that is in accordance with his holy will and necessary for your salvation, he will deliver you in his own time, of course. Clothe yourself with faith and be patient. Simply looking at current conditions, we see that they continually change. Nothing stays the same. Even that which burdens you will change. There will come a day when you will breathe freely and not only breathe, but flutter about like a butterfly among the flowers. You only have to endure the allotted term with patience. The housewife places a pie in the oven and does not take it out until she is certain that it is baked. The master of the world has placed you in an oven and is keeping you there waiting for you to be baked. Be patient then and wait. As soon as you are ready, you will not have to sit another minute in the oven. You will be taken out immediately. If you rush out of there on your own, you will be like a half-baked pie. Arm yourself with patience. I would also say to you that by our faith, he who endures the troubles he encounters with good cheer, accepting them as being from the hand of the Lord, is a partaker of martyrdom. And print this well in your thought if you will, and draw comfort from it in your heart. Wow, so much in this one, one paragraph. So be, have faith and be patient that conditions change. Uh, you know, there are times in our life where the, the whole fabric of our life seems to change, that circumstances we face make, can make our life seem unrecognizable from what it was at another time in our life. And I thought his point here about though, even the bad things change, the burdens change, that eventually they too will alter and be transformed. And so what is really most important is how we enter into those realities, whether good or bad. You know, we can be going through a good period in our life where everything seems to be going well, and yet it is every bit as important for us to be focused upon God and to make that irrevocable commitment of ourselves to him so that when the fabric of our life changes for one reason or another, and it will, and it will, that we are, have already been clinging to God. Uh, the, the prophet Isaiah says, the Lord is an everlasting rock. The Lord is an eternal rock. And that has always been for me one of the most uh, comforting of sayings that despite the, this constant change and continual change that uh, Theophan speaks of here, to think of ourselves as resting upon an everlasting and an eternal rock gives us a kind of hope that even when we can't see it, and even when everything seems to be torn apart, and as we say, and as I said, even when the fabric of our life changes so much that it seems unrecognizable to us that the tr truest reality in our life is the rock upon which we stand. And uh, I thought it was sort of cute in some ways that he uses the image of a, <laughs> a pie baking. I mean, that really softens the, the blow, I think, because really it's, you know, the idea is being forged in the fire 
you know, of, of God's love and, uh, and somehow seeing ourselves as a pie being baked in the oven seems a little bit more <laughs> comforting uh, that eventually something sweet and something wonderful comes out of that. And if you were to remove it too soon, that would not be the case. And that, you know, his putting in this way, I think, is trying to instill a kind of confidence in the love of God, that even though we might feel the heat, as it were, of the reality of our life, that what God is bringing about, what God is cooking up, if you will, is something beautiful. You know, and in some ways, this is more comforting than we often hear of it, which is a purifying fire, and which is true. And I think this is what he's saying to her. But using this image, I think, helps her to see it and see God in a certain in a certain light. You know, especially in the, the light of a mother figure here, you know, baking a pie, you know, for her family that, you know, that there's a kind of gentleness that he inserts here for her so that she can look at the, these experiences and not lose sight of the loving God who is always present in the midst of them. That he's not hammering away at us, you know, with a chisel and, you know, flashing down, you know, bolts of fire at us, you know, and like, sadistic, you know, the, uh, with the emperor from the dark side, you know, laughing maniacally, uh, but rather it's, you know, a loving God who's tenderly trying to bring us to that place where we, we can begin to experience the sweetness of his love. And, uh, and that over the course of our life, we would be able to trust him. And even to the point you know, that it opens up for us this kind of vision of this experience, that it's a participation in martyrdom. That, you know, one other author uh, stated this uh, about the stigmata, that all priests should be stigmatist. And in a sense, really all Christians should be stigmatist, those who bear the marks of Christ's wounds on their body. That we love in such a way, in other words, that we allow ourselves to be broken and poured out in love for others, that people should see this about us, that the marks of Christ's love should be identifiable within us, not something hidden, that they should see something different about the way that we love. And in a similar way, you know, I think what Theophan is trying to uh, bring her to see here is that this offering of herself to God in such an irrevocable way is akin to the, the martyr's offering of uh, his or herself on, on, you know, being crucified or burnt at the stake, that there, you know, this uh, slower purification, if you will, or slower offering over the course of life is nonetheless a, a martyrdom, a witness to the, the love of the kingdom, a witness to the faith of a Christian that is no less beautiful and no less true than the martyrs that were put to death for the faith of old. Anthony. You know, Father, when you were talking about chiseling, for example, okay, uh, that's my hobby. I'm actually sitting next to my Chasing and Repoussé set. I've got mm -hmm. the little chisels, et cetera, here. Yeah. 
you have to know the metals that you're dealing with. For example, you work iron in a very different cycle than you work copper. And sometimes you have to put the stress on, for example, copper, so you don't, uh, you have to heat it up and, and cool it. Sometimes it's important. Sometimes you might want to cool it quickly. So it can take the right impression. Because if you don't, the stress you put on it is going to crack it. Right. Um, and it's, you, you set off a whole chain of, of thoughts in here that what might be good for Father David Abernathy, who's like iron or steel, might not be good for me, which is a much softer metal, okay, for, for example, okay. And I, <laughs> I have multiple cracks. And I guess like God really has got to know what he's doing. And he <laughs> God threw me on my head when I was two years old. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess in a way, right. poor Mrs. Abernathy. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. So, so, uh, so yeah, anyway, you could take that and run with it. Yeah. I get what you're saying. And I think God does see that about the individual. And I think that's why Theophan wants her to be confident that often, you know, when we, don't see God as part of these realities of our day-to-day -day life, then we, we seem to be victims of fate. You know, what, what pulls us along in this world. Uh, but when we're able to make this irrevocable gift of ourself to God, assent to him, then we see all the things that happen to us as somehow shaping us. And, you know, I made the joke there about falling on my head when I was two, but there's, if there's one event that sort of shaped the direction of my life and that I often go, go back to, it was funny again, and not to bring up, I hate, don't want to talk about myself here, but an analysis, I went back to that over and over again in the narrative, it came up over and over again because it was this seminal event that changed the dynamic of my life but also throughout the course of my life, shaped it in some form or fashion. That the life saved, the life preserved, is somehow to be spent in a way. It's sort of like, I don't know, there was a movie, Saving Private Ryan. You remember when that came out and they all go out in search of this uh, Ryan. All his brothers were killed, like four brothers, and he was the fifth brother, and they didn't want, you know, his mother to lose all of her sons. And so they send out this crew to look for him and they find him, but they all end up getting killed in the process. And the one who is sort of leading the group, you know, he's, you know, he's dying at the end and he said, you better do something great with your life. You know, don't, don't waste it. You know, you better invite invent at least some long lasting light bulb or something like that. You know, don't, uh, you know, waste your life on nothing understanding the great cost to which it came. And, you know, and I think in some ways, you know, we are meant to look at our lives that, that way too. You know, we, we look at the, the, the cost of our life, you know, in the cross. And I think this is why we keep the crucifixes in our churches, because it, it is this, you know, it constantly holds before us the depth of that love, what God was willing to do, on our behalf. And it really speaks to us of the preciousness that we have in God's eyes. 
and also prevents us from looking at our life and losing sight of the dignity of our life. If this is how much God loves us and what he's willing to do on our behalf, then we are to seize hold of, of the life and the grace that he gives us and not hold it cheap. You know, if this is what has been given to preserve us, then we want to, to live it and live it fully. And so, you know, there are a lot of things that led to my decision to become a priest. But strangely enough, you know, the thing that probably horrifies, horrified my family the most, you know, and uh, ended up being the, the one thing that, you know, there was this consistent thread through my life that I think eventually led me to take the path that I did. You know, so many people, you know, that were a constant influence, but it was the, the one thing, you know, that had me on, you know, on this line between life and death that then, you know, eventually came back. And I have known all memory of it. That's the strange thing. There are no pictures from that period of time. It's not like people take photographs of you when you come out of the hospital all green, you know, with, with bruising. But nonetheless, it was that event that helped clarify identity on some level. And nobody would think about that. You know, nobody would see the hand of God in that or that God could do something through an event like that and shape it and direct it over the course of time into something that could give rise to faith or open up you know, the possibility of taking a certain path that one would never consider. I didn't grow up Catholic and, and not in a million years would I have thought about becoming a priest. You know, that, at a certain time that would have been horrifying <laughs> to me. I'm still sort of befuddled by how I got here, but nonetheless, I don't want to go too far with that. I'm, we're getting off the uh, beaten path here. But so you see where he's leading her. And it's, you know, to have not only comfort and confidence, but seeing that God is working something really beautiful within, with her. It, in this embrace of these realities, he's allowing her to witness, become a witness, a martyr, a witness to the love of the kingdom by how she makes her way through this. And she might not even see how that would be so, or might think that all these things would be hidden, might be hidden, but in reality, they have an impact upon the world and upon the life of the church and the life of the faithful in ways that she couldn't possibly imagine. So even in the smallest ways where she says yes to God, that strengthens the body as a whole and lifts up all those around her. So he goes on to say, it is impossible to live without emotions. And this brings us back to Andrea and Anthony's point earlier. Uh, it is impossible, in some ways to Vicky's as well, it is impossible to live without emotions, but it is not proper to yield to them. It is necessary to refresh and moderate them through reason and give them proper direction. You are impressionable and your heart spills over into your head. Do as I've already written to you. Think out ahead of time where the possible stimulus for each emotion is and enter into situations keeping yourself on the lookout for disturbances of the heart and keep your heart in steady hands. You must practice this and through practice it is possible to gain full control of yourself. So 
let me just try to broaden this out a little bit. So, you know, that emotions he's telling her are part of her life and, uh, but not to yield to them in the sense that we allow them alone to direct us in the choices that we make or shape our identity. And that's often the difficult thing. And I think in our society in particular, and even in modern psychotherapy, one of the dangers is in, uh, is giving a diagnosis. And I know this is helpful. And the, the doctor here probably is wondering what the heck I'm talking about. You know, diagnosis certainly can be helpful and help put things in perspective for people, but it also can be hobbling because if, uh, a diagnosis is given, then people can begin to see their identity as that. Uh, you know, whether it's with a physical disease or something chronic that they suffer with, or on an emotional level, if we struggle with anxiety or if we struggle with depression or some sort of psychological struggle, it's very easy for us to identify with that, that those realities that we struggle with and see ourselves only through that lens. And this is one of the things that he doesn't want to happen to her. And we shouldn't want to happen to ourselves either. And we've probably all experienced it where at some point in our life, we've labeled ourselves uh, in a particular way. And our, the, how we identify ourselves should always be as Christian, as son, daughter of God, as those who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, those loved by God with an everlasting love. So whatever we might experience in this life, and no matter how debilitating it might become to us, uh, that which shapes our identity and how we see ourselves should always be the love of Christ. And he, you know, he's no fool here. He knows that this takes, you know, practice, and this takes a, a real depth of commitment to the, allow this to emerge because it doesn't take away those realities. You know, it brings a kind of freedom uh, that is really freedom and peace in Christ. One can have that by still, and yet still struggle with those realities in their life. They can still know the joy of the kingdom despite uh, having to maybe even labor on a daily basis with, with things that are, are painful and difficult. And this, this does require a kind of mature faith and depth of prayer to be able to get there, you know, to, to tr struggle with emotions, to see them, be on the lookout for them, you know, what could take, away, take us away from that identity. And what we are trying to control isn't the realities of our life, but rather the sense of our identity, of, of where our real hope in life is to be found. And that, that is always to be found in Christ. And I think people would have a lot, of, lot more peace and we would treat people in a lot different way if this is how we understood the human person. And I think medicine has lost this a lot of times as a whole and psychotherapy has lost this a lot of times as well and not in a malicious way necessarily but because what is pushed out of out of the equation is the fullest sense of the human person 
Uh, and so, you know, a person who gets cancer, you know, it's such, you know, an overwhelming reality. And it can sort of captivate one's mind and emotions altogether. You're faced with uh, your own mortality, but you're also faced with the pain of it, the treatment that you have to undergo. And it can be something that takes over one's perception of oneself and the world completely. And how a person of faith would go through that would be radically different, not in the sense of what they would undergo or the treatment that they would receive, but ultimately, again, what their identity is, is, is rooted in. And uh, say, even with the pandemic, I, I often wonder, how did people in isolation, you know, for a couple of years, there were like 30 million people, I think the last I heard, that went through the entire pandemic alone. And you wonder, okay, gee, how is that possible? And then you think outside of faith, how is it possible that people endure certain realities in life uh, without having that eternal rock that they see themselves as resting upon, even though everything around them is chaotic or seems to be falling apart or when they feel like they're even falling, falling apart. I think most of us, even with faith, find ourselves at times walking along the edge of an abyss, that life becomes so hard that we wonder what in the heck God is doing. But still, it's, it's not to say that faith isn't still present and active there and shaping that reality for us. It is. People with the strongest faith that I know see themselves, that see themselves and their lives as hanging by a thread, but, and their lives are a mess. But in those people, I've seen the, the deepest faith that you can imagine. It's not perfect. It's not pretty. They don't have their life all pulled together. Most of that's an illusion anyways. You know, everybody has this view of those around them. Oh, they have their life so pulled together. When you're a priest and you see things in the background, <laughs> you realize that's not true. Not even in the slightest way. Everybody, I'll just tell you this, everybody's life is a mess. And, you know, everybody goes through trial and struggle. And it's the illusion that the world, and I think the evil one tells us, you have to keep up this posture, you know, uh, of, of perfection or having it all together. We see it all the time, too. You know, the rich and the famous, the actors, you know, they have this, seem to have this perfect life. And then all of a sudden they're divorced after three years and they're in this big custody battle or they're in a drug rehab place. You know, it's there is no, you know, perfect life in this world. And we sort of have to let go of that illusion and cling to the one in, in whom there's real hope. Okay, so let's move on. But everything comes from God. It is necessary to turn to him. You write, however, that you do not pray. Clever girl, have you become an atheist or something? What do you mean you do not pray? You do not recite all the set prayers, but you tell God in your own words what is on your mind, and you ask for help. See, Lord, what is happening with me? This thing and that, I cannot cope with myself. Help, all merciful one. 
Tell every little part of your need and ask personal help for everything. This will be the most genuine prayer. You may always pray with your own prayer without reading the prayers in the book, just as long as you do not indulge yourself in laziness. What a perfect paragraph. I must have said that a thousand times in reading this book. But in, oftentimes in the spiritual life, we take an overly programmatic view of the spiritual life and the life of prayer, as if somehow life is so neat that we're going to be able to do these set prayers every single day of our life, as if that were the litmus test of how deep our faith is. And so what he's telling her here is that there are going to be times in your life where everything seems to be falling apart, and the only thing that you could utter is, help me, God. I don't know what's going on. I can't cope. And he said, that, that's the most genuine prayer, that which comes from the depths of one's heart. And it might come out in broken words, and you might not be following the set prayers, but nonetheless, it's true prayer and what's pleasing to God. It's the deepest expression of faith. What, what wonderful counsel, because you can imagine as she enters into the religious life, you know, her being enamored with the order of religious life is going to fade pretty quickly. And she's going to be dealing with her own poverty. She's going to be living with all these nuns that eventually some of them, she won't be able to stand the sight of them or who treat them her poorly. And, or all this, you know, or she's, you know, slandered for something in the community. And where the only thing that she's going to be able to utter is something like that prayer, help me. I don't know what's going on. Why, why is this taking place in my life? It's really beautiful. And I think only the ex most experienced director would be able to say that to someone, you know, because I, you know, I think especially in the West, you know, we have this tendency towards a kind of legalism and, you know, it can infect us in different ways. He says, as long as you're not falling into laziness, in negligence. You know, that's the only thing to fear here. But don't fall under the illusion, but the, just by saying all the prayers, you've, you've got it all, all together. You know, I, I think I've told the story before. There was a time prior to the Second Vatican Council where, you know, priests had, you know, the divine office had not been, uh, uh, had not been revised and it was you know you had to say all the different hours of the office it was very long and challenging and when priests had the act of life sometimes you know you were bound to say the office so some priests would rise early in the morning and they would say every single hour of the office in the morning get through it all rather than breaking the day in order to sanctify time uh, because they were so concerned about not committing a mortal sin by failing to say all those prayers of, of the office, that something could erupt, you know, somebody could die, they could have to run to the hospital, you know, all these unexpected things. But, and so what do you do if you can't do one of the hours of the office? And so they try to, you know, to bypass that by doing it all and, you know, one shot in the, in the morning. And it's absurd. I think when we step back and we think about it, but that was the mindset that was guiding things. And it can still, in subtle ways, I think, guide us today 
in the way that we approach God. And so while he wants her to be disciplined, he also wants her to be free. And he wants her to be able to trust in the mercy of God. And he wants her to be able to speak to God from the depths of her heart and trust that that's what's beautiful in the eyes of God and acceptable in his eyes. Why do you listen to the person who suggests that you give up prayer? Or do you not see that this is the enemy? Obviously it is. He murmurs in your ear, give it up. And sometimes after seizing your entire body, he drags you quickly off to bed. <laughs> that sounds familiar. These are tricks, all his tricks. But he is going about his business, distracting you from your good work. We, however, must go about our business, not abandoning our good work until we are finished. Thus be armed with courage, if you please, and do not listen to the enemy. Do not pay any attention to his murmuring. It is even better to get angry. Angry at the enemy is the same thing as striking someone in the chest. He will fly off immediately. I wish with all my heart for you to find peace at last. Lord, give the blessing. So an interesting thing, you know, we've talked before about the insensitive faculty of the soul, you know, that we become incensed at those things that would pull us away from God not directing them towards, uh, towards others, not directing that anger towards others, but to the enemy. So when we see him using his tricks, trying to draw us away from God, that we would use force, we would allow that anger to be directed to its appropriate object in order that we might stand fast and, and be courageous in the battle. Really powerful letter. And so even though we're finishing up with it, I mean, go back and reread it over and over again. There's so many things here that are important about really the, the, what's really at the, the you know, the, the roots of human life, where we often live and experience things. And he offers some wonderful counsel. And allow yourself to read it slowly and go back over and, and over, over it. Do you mind, uh, you know, I'm going to go on with letter 80. I know it's 830. It's only a page long, page and a half long. Uh, so if you have to go, I understand. But uh, we've already advertised that we're starting St. John Comics next week. So we're pressing on for this one night. And still earlier than we usually end anyways. So hang in there. Uh, we could come back to letter 79. So if you have any thoughts, feel free to jot them down. And if you want to bring them back up. Letter 80, rest after the storm of temptations. May the grace of God be with you. Well, glory be to God. Through prayer, you've begun to defy your anxieties, or better, to defy the enemy who caused them. And peace has come to you. May the Lord help you to continue such activity. So you see what a storm you have endured. The words of the Lord have been fulfilled in you. Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Where did he not toss you? The Lord allowed it, and he sifted you, first tossing you one way, then the other. What a grace of God that at last you were delivered. You are learning. The science of life is acquired through experience. 
Remember well what it was like for you during the entire course of this terrible condition, and you will understand it more precisely. All this time you were under attacks of the enemy. You know now what these attacks are like, how they appear and how they depart. Henceforth, you will know when you are undergoing an enemy attack. The enemy always masks themselves with the illusion of righteousness. Do not look at that, however, but at what is going on inside the soul. That is the continual anxiety and vague uncertainty. In this way, you may guess immediately that the enemy has come. Drive him away with harsh admonishments and through prayer. Godly influences, however, are always light-bearing. Your guardian angel has put a word of comfort in your ear concerning this. Get accustomed to listening to him, and he will teach you everything. And so, you know, he's not, you know, these just aren't pious sayings. I think what he's saying here is ever so important for the spiritual life, that it is experience that teaches us. And it is when we come out the other side of having been tossed around like a rag doll that we begin to see that God was not absent from that. And that in the struggle for faith, in the midst of it, that faith deepens. And in the struggle to hold on to prayer in the midst of that upheaval, when we can't see a thing, is when prayer deepens. And when, one, when a person really learns how to pray and what prayer is, it's not when everything is going well that we learn that. It's when we're undergoing trial and we're really calling out to God from the depths of our heart, from the depths of our being, that one begins to really pray. And it's out of this experience then that a deep and abiding peace begins to emerge. You know, I think we've, you may have met, and I've met a number of people over the course of time that have this kind of deep and abiding peace about them. And, you know, most often they've also been people who've undergone the deepest trials in their life, spiritual or otherwise, and have held fast, have endured, have persevered through them, even when it was messy or even when they felt that they had very little faith or that they were failing God or that they weren't being virtuous, that they held on where they hoped against hope, as it were. And they emerged on the other side of that. And what, what flowers from that, the fruit that emerges from that, is this kind of deep and abiding peace, not in themselves, but uh, that comes from having this trust in the grace of God, that he does not abandon us, even while we seem to be thrown around by life. The God is in the midst of that, even more so when we seem to be thrown, thrown around by life, that God, God is there. And, uh, and so, you know, th these are incredibly helpful words, because I think we can reach that point in our life where we begin to wonder, and our, our faith begins to wane. You know, we feel that, you know, that these things must be punishment, or that God has abandoned us. And where it becomes almost impossible for us to imagine that God loves us or that he's part of these things. And again, it's only when we come out the other side, when the storm has ended, that we, we see the truth. And so what he's counseling her and for all of us to do is to abide in the Lord, 
no matter what comes. And that the real fruit of that is, is what he describes here in the last paragraph. That Satan will try to sift us like wheat, but he, he won't succeed as much as he seems to be succeeding in our life. It will ultimately fail because God is capable of making all of those things work for the good of those who love him. I'm very glad that you have set out on your path. Labor over yourself, if you will, preparing yourself for what you intended. The enemy is compelling you to hurry. He always alarms us so as to confuse matters. Godly things, however, are peaceful and quiet. It is impossible except with waiting and everything in its own time. The time will come when it will be downhill the rest of the way, as I've already written. You intend to move to the village and are dreaming about the pleasures of village life. Good, good. That life has truth. In cities, especially in capital cities, there is no truth. There everyone is playing a comedy. May God grant you to reach that place where you quietly grew up and were educated as soon as possible and safely. How will you remember your sojourn in the ancient capital? It afforded you all kinds of useful learning, especially at the end, it duly scorched you in the frying pan. So an interesting thought, you know, I think often the big city is seen as the center of life and all the, you know, the, not the podunks, but what do they call people that live in the, the country? You know, the, you know, they sort of make fun of them, you know, they're, they're unsophisticated and their, or that their life is boring. And what he's saying to her here is that actually that this is a place where we want to be. The person who desires peace and the person who desires Oh, bumpkins, somebody, <laughs> country bumpkins. Yeah, that the one who desires peace is not going to throw themselves unnecessarily into the midst of chaos. And, you know, the bright lights in the big city often loses its glamour pretty quickly. And we begin to see the disorder that often fills it. And, you know, what we see in the monks, you know, in that retreat to the desert, I think emerges with, within the heart of anyone who is seeking God, if not to be able to leave the city, then to, to create an environment for themselves that has a kind of simplicity, that they don't overly complicate their lives, and they make room for silence and stillness, and that they, you know, don't thrust themselves into everything that presents, them, presents itself before their eyes but seeks to protect that which is most precious, that internal stillness that allows them to experience the presence of God. And so he wants her, you know, he's glad for her to go back. You know, what did you gained a lot, you learned a lot, but it's because you were basically thrown into the frying pan. You were, you were scorched in the process and it taught you the hard way. And so now allow yourself you know, to take hold of that wisdom, but to, to return to that place where you aren't going to be, you're going to be least tempted to, uh, you know, either embrace those things of the world, embrace the illusion, or to be overcome by the anxiety that those, those realities create for us. 
And this this cracked me up when I read this last paragraph. This sounds like something that I would I would say to someone. He says, you will be an anchoress in the village. I will add something of my own to your dreams. Find a natural cave or dig one out with your own hands. On one side, if possible, let there be a small fountain. On the other side, some sort of fruit tree. In front, a small garden. Train a few songbirds for the tree and flowers. Arise early and secluding yourself here, sing together with the birds to the glory of the one who created all. May the Lord bless your path. <laughs> I said, I think I wrote that at some point. I think I said that to somebody. He's stealing from me. Uh, so it's sort of a curious thing. You know, he's telling her that even in the path that she's taking, you know, you know, carve out some place for yourself where you can have this deep solitude where you can experience the beauty of the one who created you, where there's nothing that's going to become an impediment or get in the way of your, your seeing that. And we don't necessarily have to leave the city to do that. You know, we can create, create that. Here at the Oratory with Adoration, you know, Philip Neary had his Nido, you know, that encouraged his men to create a nest, their room as their nest, their place where they could know that solitude, where they would retreat after the day's labor or whenever they could throughout the course of the day back into that silence and stillness. And so, you know, I don't think we need to take him in an overly literalistic fashion here that she's to get down with her hands and dig out a hole in the ground for herself but on a spiritual level most certainly you know dig out a place where you can know this absolute solitude to be alone with god and that might simply be within our own hearts you know that we through our prayer and, and especially in the way that we pray on a day-to-day -day basis enter into that silent place uh, and you know it's when the heart has been formed and shaped by the grace of god you know that is the truest and most secure cave that no one can enter you know where there's only intimacy between oneself and, and god and so you know his ultimate counsel to her is to create that space that is ever so protected for yourself and god and I think that should be true for all of us as well. That we go there as often as we can. Any final comments, questions about the last two letters? Anything? Anybody want to cry because we're done with the FN? I've been having people tell me that for weeks now. I'd be sorry to see this go. There is something about letters aren't there? I mean, it sort of makes you see what we've lost because we aren't letter writers anymore. But there is something beautiful here and a really deep relationship that existed between the two of them that became even more beautiful over time, even though they were separated by a great distance. There was a real kind of intimacy in it. Newman was the same way. He was a letter writer. And, wrote, you know, in, in fact, his collection of letters, I think, is one of the largest extent collections in existence. Uh, because he wrote so many to people, you know, with question, who had questions about the faith. Padre Pio was the same way. I mean, the, the store of his letters is quite, 
great as well. I'm not a letter writer, so don't get any smart ideas. <laughs> so any final thoughts? Okay. Thank you. And I'm sorry if that, you know, I did take hold of the group a little bit tonight to get through it. Uh, and not that I want you to rush it. I think these would be good to go back and re read again. Uh, but I've been getting calls weekly. When are you starting Climacus? And it's typically read during the season of Lent. And so I think it's sort of a privileged thing for us to be able to start it right at the beginning of Lent. We're not going to get through even a small portion of it during these 40 days. But I think being able to start when so many others are reading it at this time is a real blessing. And so I look forward to picking that up with you uh, next week at this time. Same time, same channel. Okay. So won't we close with a prayer as always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And go in peace. Thanks, Thanks God. God. God bless everybody. Happy Lent. Joyful Lent.